0: Hey everybody, welcome back. This is week 43 of Creative Come Follow Me for the Old Testament, and we're in part two of our series on Jeremiah. And this is kind of the second half, and I gotta be honest, I was sort of expecting this to be a down week. (laughs) I don't know how to articulate this, but I, knowing we were reading the second part of Jeremiah where Jerusalem is destroyed and Lamentations where you Hear Jeremiah's heartache because it was destroyed. I was anticipating a week of heaviness. And maybe because I tend to seek out for those little bursts of light in my scripture study, I was delightfully surprised at how much light there was in this week's chapters. Honestly, I think it's because of the contrast. I think, I talk about this in my Time Out for Women talk, but I believe one of the ways that God makes weak things become strong is by creating contrast, these opportunities to shine out in dark places. And that's what you see in Jeremiah this week. He speaks about brightness and hope in the midst of Utter devastation. And I just find it remarkable. The way he can call attention to those bright patches of light is so worth your time. So I I hope you're excited to read this week's reading. We're going to do the second half of Jeremiah. We're not going to read all the chapters. We'll just do a handful. And then we'll do two of the chapters in Lamentations just to get a feel for Jeremiah's heart and. How it ends, and how his focus on the gathering brings light and peace and warmth to every other verse. And I think you're gonna love it. So grab your scriptures, grab your notes, let's get started. We get one of those moments of contrast right out of the gate in chapter 30. This is where you see that Jeremiah is directed to write things down, which Must have seemed a bit tedious to him because no one's listening to him anyway. So the very idea that I have to take the time to write it down, I wonder if that's why he has a scribe. We're going to meet him in a little bit, but I think it's, it's this understanding of your words need to go farther than your voice can carry them. And I think it's why he directs us to write things down as well. What I love about Jeremiah's situation is I wonder sometimes his life mirrors Abinadai's in a lot of ways. Uh, He is someone who often will stand in the court of a king and the king won't hear. In fact, the kings always throw him in prison and he is out on the streets and no one hears him. But what I love about Jeremiah is we know that some of his words, not all of them, but some of his words make it out of Jerusalem. They go with Lehi's family on the brass plates and they begin this whole new life in this Book of Mormon quest. So, it's this, I don't think Jeremiah ever, or if he knew about them, it would have been through Revelation somehow. But it's almost like Alma with Abinadi. You know, Abinadi didn't get to see his words go forward, but they do. And that's what happens with Jeremiah as well. His words will go across that great ocean and will, you know, become this Fuel for the faith of this family that's just off on their own rebuilding a nation. It's just this powerful visual for me to think about him that way. So he writes his words down. And most of the words he writes in chapter 30 are these words about the gathering that will ultimately happen. So the the Lord promises in three that they will come home. All these children will eventually be brought home. And in eight, he talks about the yoke that's going to be lifted. What's powerful about the yoke visual is. Back in chapter 27, we didn't read this for Come, Follow Me, but you learn that, you know, you know how we talked last week about how Jeremiah is a very visual learner. One of the ways he teaches is by putting an actual yoke on his shoulders and wearing it around town and talking about the bondage that these children of Israel are getting into by by worshiping false gods, by making alliances with Egypt and all these problems. They're actually creating this bondage. And so he wears a yoke to help people visualize it. And it reminds me of those things our missionaries do. You know, you talk to your Richard missionary kids, and they tell you about how like, they sung on doorsteps, or they had some sign that they held up to catch people's eye. That's what's happening with him. But people just don't stop, and they don't see, and they don't listen. So I wonder if it was powerful for Jeremiah, after having carried a yoke for so long, to actually speak of this yoke coming off and that promise. Uh, even if no one else heard it, I bet he delighted in that verse. He also talks about how it's going to come off. And that will come through the Savior who will come through the line of David. So if you look in 9, it talks about David, their king. The meaning of this, especially if you go on the footnotes, you can learn more, is this is a reference to Christ who will ultimately come and bring them ultimately home. Remember, the Jews are going to have several fulfillments of this coming home prophecy. In 70 years after they're captured by Babylon, they're going to get a chance to come home under the Persians. Remember, we studied with Cyrus and how he let people come back and rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple. But there's going to be a few fulfillments of this prophecy. Just the great one is the great gathering that will happen before the Savior comes again, and that's what he's referring to. So he talks about how they will be healed, that there will be a time of restoring. But he also talks about how there will be a time of consequence. So if you look at 11, he says, I am with thee. I, I think he sends this message loud and clear over and over again, no matter how far they've strayed. They're they're doing child sacrifice. They're worshiping idols in the temple. They are far astray, but he is still with them. He just can't bless them because they're pulling away from him, but he will never leave their side. He says, I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee. Though I make a full end of all nations, whether I have scattered thee, yet I will not make a full end of thee. I will correct thee in measure, and I will not leave thee altogether unpunished. <laughs> that phrase to me is a very parenting phrase. As parents, we do this all the time where we say, I know you're going to get grounded and it's going to feel like your life is over, or I'm taking your phone and shutting down all your apps and you're going to think your life is over, but it's not over and I'm not obliterating your future. I am just letting you understand. I'm giving you time to let things sink in so that your choices become clear to you. That's what I think correct in measure means. It means your rebellion is going to have a proportional consequence. Remember how we learned in conference about how weakness and rebellion are not the same thing? The Lord is always merciful with weakness. Rebellion is a different story, and the children of Israel have rebelled against the covenant. They have had prophets teaching them, they've had big covenants made, and they have turned away from them. And so the measured response is proportional (laughs) and it's hard. And he says, I'm not going to leave you altogether unpunished because his ultimate goal is to bring to pass their immortality and eternal life. And that can't happen if he doesn't allow them to feel the consequences of their decisions. But I love the reminder that he is always with them, whether they chose this hard road or if they had chosen a happier one, he will be with them no matter what and then he talks about how he can cure them. So in 12, this is an important one to find the JST version of it because it's so much more hopeful. He talks about in the J, er, in the King James it talks about how bruises are incurable and in the JST it's exactly the opposite. Bruises are not incurable. They wounds can be healed. That's the promise. So for me I circled in those next few 4 or 5 verses all those things that are hard, the sorrow, the chastisement, the wounds, the regrets. And I drew big arrows all the way down to 17, where you see his promise, for I will restore health unto you. When you flip the page, it's even better. He says, I will heal thee of thy wounds, saith the Lord. That's his promise always and forever, that he will never stop reaching out for them, that he can restore, that this time of grounding that is gonna be so grievous to be born, all those wounds can be healed, all those pains can be lifted, and that's his promise. I just think it's a—it's interesting to me from a parenting perspective to understand why he does things in this way, that his goal is to help them change. And you see that kind of come about in 21. So he says, I will cause him to draw near. That's, I think, the purpose of the grounding. If you <laughs> I had the situation with Jack just this week, where you have to have a little bit of separation so that they can, their hearts can soften and they can, draw near unto you. I love that that's the Savior's way. He doesn't force, He doesn't cajole, He doesn't bribe. He gives them space, lets them feel consequences until they're ready to come back, and He is constantly inviting them to draw near. I almost picture, like when the Savior says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's this pull, You can almost feel this undercurrent, this gentle undercurrent to come towards him. For me, I think it's what gives me peace as a parent, that no matter how far my kids stray, he will never stop pulling them. He will never stop trying to draw them in. He will never override their agency either, and there are times I wish that wasn't the case, but he will constantly be pulling all of us in towards him. He has this magnetic power that simply can't be resisted when as soon as you start to turn, that magnetic power gets stronger and stronger. And that's what he promises. And I love what you see at the end of 21. He says, who is this that engages his heart to approach unto me? For me, that's the pivotal shift. When you decide to engage your heart, when your kids are grounded and they decide to engage their heart, it means their apologies sound different. They come back with a heart of, okay, mom, I screwed this up. What can I do to make it better? i I understand now what can I do? That's the engagement piece. There's a great talk in the notes all about this that when we choose to engage with the Lord and we want to hear His guidance, we want to take His correction, we want to act on what we're learning, that engagement is actually what changes our hearts and restores the relationship. And that's the piece that Jeremiah is trying to help the children of Israel understand as they head into this very hard, hard road. Chapter 31 is probably the most important of all the chapters because it speaks about this new covenant that will be made. So go slow in chapter 31. If you only have time to read one chapter, try to over here, because I think if Jeremiah had to pick, this is where he would want you. And he speaks about loving kindness. That's where he starts things off. If you notice in the notes, I link you to just this month, in October, in the Liahona Magazine, there is this beautiful article from President Nelson. It's not his conference talk. It's a it's an article all about the covenant, and he speaks about loving kindness and said that Hebrew word that means, it's translated as loving kindness in our verses, but it's this covenantal love. It's something much deeper and much more binding. And that's where he begins around verse three. He talks about, Yea, the Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Remember that magnetic pull? That's what he's promising. What I thought was really interesting is when I was going in the footnote path on three, it talks about when he has appeared of old. The the footnote says this means from afar. And I sometimes wonder, because we learn in verse, where is it? It's at the end of this page, 26, that he awoke from this dream and the, the sleep was sweet unto him. I wonder if maybe Jeremiah is having some very restless nights with, or maybe this is when he's in a prison and there's mud and he can't rest and, and he's struggling and the Lord comes to him and brings him from afar, this vision of the future. Because a lot of what you see in this chapter is all about how it will look down the road. When the gathering is happening, the blessings that will pour out, this loving kindness. This is where you see, basically, you know when the prodigal son comes home and his father gives him, they kill the fatted calf and they put a ring on his finger and a robe around his Dingy shoulders. And it's that's what he's trying to teach us is that the children of Israel are going to be that prodigal son who will come home and they will be adorned. So, if you've seen four, that they'll be adorned, that people will make music, there will be a celebration because his children are finally back. He talks in six that there will be watchmen who will be eagerly trying to prophesy and teach us so that we can help this gathering come about. In eight, you'll see that there will be this great company coming home. In fact, six, eight, and ten are all verses that Moroni uses when he speaks to Joseph Smith about his work, this restoration of things that will begin at Joseph Smith and then will, you know, reverberate for all the rest of time. That that's that's what he's promising, this great returning to him. And he talks in nine, I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way. I am the father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. He is despite the fact that Ephraim is north, those are the northern tribes, so he's talking about even those who seem scattered and lost already, they will be home. Because remember, they're like the prodigal son. They, Even though they feel like they are not worthy to be called son, they want to be a servant in the household, the Lord will say, oh no, you're mine, and your inheritance never changes. You, If you come to me and you gather in, you will have the ring, you will have the robe, we will Kill the fatted calf and we will celebrate your return. So that's what he promises. In 10, it gets even deeper. He talks about how he will gather them. He will keep them as a shepherd doth his flock. This is not just Northern Israel, but Southern all the children of Israel will be gathered in. And the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and hath ransomed him. This, These are big voluntary words that the Lord is offering. This loving kindness, this covenantal love that he's promised that's how it looks. He redeems them. He ransomed them. He pays the price so that they can be, so that He can repair the breach, right? This is what we learned about throughout the Old Testament, that all the Lord wants is there to be no separation between His beloved people and Himself. He wants to constantly repair that breach, to pull out the sin that's the wedge in the middle and to bring everyone back to Him. And He can see it. And I imagine Jeremiah can't always. So, I love that potentially in a prison where He's you know, sitting in mud, he gets this beautiful vision of what it's going to look like down the road. So, he talks in 13, I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them. I will make them rejoice from their sorrow. 14, I mean, these are beautiful words. I will satiate the soul of my priests with fatness. That means he's going to give the, the people who are the leaders and the teachers so much richness. Don't you feel like that with modern revelation that there is so much you can feast on from all the general authorities not just in our day but you know since joseph smith's time that there's so much you can feast on that you you can't fill yourself you'll be satiated the souls will be satiated with fatness and my people will be satisfied with my goodness that phrase was really powerful to me because i think sometimes we wonder i know god can restore all things and i know he can bring all joys back and make us feel whole but sometimes you wonder how that's even possible if you've experienced certain levels of pain and depth. Uh, certain, you know, I have friends who've experienced loss in a way that I can't even wrap my head around. And it's hard to imagine how he could fill all those wounds. But that's the promise that they will be satisfied with his goodness. I don't know how that shakes out, but I know that my dear friend will be satisfied, how, however, that happens. And that there's going to be difficulty in the interim. So, if you look at 15, this is that great verse about Rachel. About This is referring to this, the people in Israel who are watching their children be carried off captive. And they're watching destruction happen. And they're weeping. Rachel is weeping because of her children who were not. There's some beautiful statues about this Um she's sorrowing. This is also the verse that the apostles will cite in the New Testament when they're talking about the, the destruction of the children under Herod's rule, you know, all the children up to two who are killed because of Herod's proclamation. Um, but it has multiple applications and he knows that that pain is, they're going to feel that pain deeply. But the promise happens in 16, thy work shall be rewarded. All those mothers who achingly long for their children to be brought back to them, in time, they will have it. Their work will be rewarded. And then 17, and there is hope in thine end. I have a big exclamation points on both sides of that phrase. We have to trust in thine end, that all things can work together for our good. That's what he's trying to teach us. That's what Jeremiah never wants the people to forget. And I think in this moment, it's what the Lord wants Jeremiah to never forget. There is hope in thine end. Because Jeremiah's end, isn't pretty. We don't know exactly how he died, but tradition is that he's carried off into Egypt and is killed maybe by stoning by those who should have listened to him. So, he won't feel like his end is prevailing, but this is the promise. There is hope in thine end because of this gathering that will happen. Jeremiah is setting the stage for that. His words are going to be in the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is the pivotal piece that brings people in at the gathering, so you can see where there's hope in Jeremiah's end. Uh, It it goes deeper as you go further into the verses. He talks about how Ephraim is still his son. That's in verse 20. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spake against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Despite the fact that his children are in uh, a timeout, (laughs) an awful hard timeout, he remembers them, he's thinking on them, and he wants them home. And so he directs them to set up these high heaps. That's in 21. It's almost like the goal program, like the children and youth program we have today where they're supposed to set up these high places, these, you know, the next big thing. Sometimes when I'm running or hiking, this is what I will do, right? I don't ever just stop. I try to stop at a certain landmark. Like I'm gonna make it to that tree. I'm gonna make it to that electric box. And that helps my brain get a little bit further down the road. That's what he's inviting them to do in 21. He warns them about backsliding. And then in 25, for I have satiated the weary soul, I have replenished every sorrowful soul, and upon this, this is 26, upon this I awakened. When Jeremiah learns from the Lord that every soul can be full and everyone can be satiated, he awakes from this dream or this restless night of sleep, and it was sweet unto him. That's the words he uses. I just love that piece of this story. But it gets even better as we go into the next part of 31. The Lord reminds Jeremiah how long he's been watching things in verse 28. He says, I've watched over them to pluck up and to break down, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, saith the Lord. Those are the instructions Jeremiah got way back in Jeremiah 1, that as a prophet, this was going to be his work. Sometimes it's going to be to pull out the weeds, and sometimes it's going to be to plant. And the Lord is watching the whole time. He doesn't slumber. He doesn't sleep. He sees them no matter where they are. And this next phase where the gathering will occur is that planting phase. And he highlights it from about 31 to 35 or so. I loved these verses because they're all about the new covenant. I learned a lot this week about covenants because it happened to be what I was teaching to the YSAs as well. But again, you want to go to that President Nelson article because he talks about how a covenant is a relationship. It's this tie that binds people together. I had a sweet conversation with Elaine Dalton in an airport this week about this where a covenant is a relationship between you and the Lord. It's not just being bound, it's trusting in Him. And the visual that kept coming to my mind as I was prepping my YSA lesson on this was trapeze. So, I don't know if you guys ever watched, I think it was called Circus with the Stars when I was a kid. It was one of my favorite things to watch because you would see these celebrities, kind of like dancing with the stars, but they would do circus acts. And the one I loved the most was the trapeze because you would see these famous people get like, held up by these really strong guys who were holding onto a bar and then flipped in the air these amazing tricks and then caught by somebody else on the other side. And that's what I see in a covenant relationship, that there is this profound trust That if the if that performer just does the routine the way they've trained and practiced, there is strength on both sides. There is someone who will give them the power, the you know the endowment of power that they need in order to pull off this trick that can't be done in any other way. And there's somebody on the other side that's willing to catch them and get them ready for the next move. And the Lord, as this great choreographer of this incredible thing, is making sure that the timing is perfect that you will have the help you need. That's what a covenant relationship means. It means you are bound to him and he will never take his eye off you. And he is planning for you no matter what intersections of agency you hit, no matter if you make a mistake, there is this cushy big net at the bottom, this repentance net to catch you. That is the visual that helps me understand (laughs) a trapeze act. But I just think it's the reason it meant something to me is because I feel like those tricks, if I tried to do them without the help of those those people that swing you, you, you couldn't accomplish it. Sometimes I think, especially with teenagers and young adults, they get into this vein of, maybe I don't really need the ordinances. Maybe I don't need covenants. I can just lead a good life. And what the prophets and apostles teach over and over again is, you can't do these tricks without His power. There is only one gate, there's only one way, there's only this covenant path, and that's the only way to achieve the exaltation you are hoping for. So no matter how good of a life you lead, without that peace, you're missing something. That's why we have those five saving ordinances and why they're such a big deal. So I feel like that's what he's trying to teach the children of Israel, that at the end, in fact, at the end of this chapter, he talks about how he will write it on their inward parts. This is around verse 33. We'll talk about this in the object lessons too, but there has to be a change inside It can't just be on the surface. It can't be tablets of stone anymore. It has to be inscribed on their heart. It has to go deeper than that. And so, he needs them to change. And when there is an inward change and a covenantal relationship, you can do things you never could do on your own. I think that's why he focuses in 36 about the ordinances, that if they set aside these ordinances, their endowment of power departs. So they need the ordinances the exact same way we need them today. So go listen to President Nelson, or go read the talk in this month's Liahona. I think it will help you understand it, but I loved this idea of ordinances and how they endow us with the power to accomplish things we could never do on our own. We shift gears a little bit in chapter 32. This is where you see one of Jeremiah's interactions with the king. So, this is King Zedekiah, the one that's mentioned. So, this this time period, because he talks about how they're about to be besieged by Babylon. So, this must be right after Lehi's family leaves Jerusalem, because that happens in the reign of Zedekiah. So, I wonder if this is kind of the aftermath after Lehi's family goes and things have gone downhill for a while. But he's wondering why Jeremiah is prophesying. Why, when destruction is imminent, why is he prophesying? And I wonder if Jeremiah wonders what is that as well at times? But there's this interesting object lesson that kind of comes to the surface in chapter 32 that you have to watch for. So basically, Jeremiah is in prison because of his prophecies, and one of his family members comes to him and asks him to purchase family property. I don't know if I don't know the backstory here. I don't know if the family was destitute, if something had happened. Remember last week when we talked about how his family in Ananath had turned against him and even wanted to kill him? So this is a clear change of heart that they're coming to Jeremiah in prison to say, you have the first right of refusal. Will you buy this land and save the family? And he does because he's directed by the Lord. And I had to think to myself, like, how much money could a prophet actually have? You know, what if this is the last of Jeremiah's money? What, I don't know. I don't know the circumstances, but it did, as I considered some possibilities, it helped new ideas Come about as I read the verses. Because the instruction from the Lord is really interesting. Basically, what the Lord says is buy it, buy the land. And I want you to write up all the documentation about it, and I want you to seal it up in these jars. And it could mean a few things, depending on those variables that we don't know. You know, if it's the variable is he needed to show forgiveness to his family who hated him and turned against him. And now in this moment, he gets to redeem them, he gets to save them. That's a beautiful story. If the message is, Despite the fact that Babylon's coming and all this land is going to get conquered, we believe that we will own this land in the future. Maybe sealing up those documents and purchasing them with a price. The same way we saw with the other patriarchs who had to purchase land to bury their wives. Remember all that? They purchased land that wasn't theirs at the time so that they could begin the promised land. Maybe it's a way to say, I'm all in. You know, if, what if, if those are his last dollars and he's wondering why the Lord. Wants him to give it. Why, of all the things, am I going to purchase land that's going to get taken by the Babylonians anyway? Why? And I think when you seal up those documents in those vessels, it says, I am all in. I know this land is not under the control of Babylonians. It won't be under the control of the Persians. It's under the control of the Lord. And he promised it will be ours again. So I'm buying this land. You know, it's it's like buying a property in Monopoly when you know you're going to lose anyway. <laughs> and he just does it because he honors what the Lord asked him to do. And it's powerful. There's a whole bunch of different ways you can interpret those scriptures. But I love seeing all these object lessons in Jeremiah's life just play out. And he talks about how nothing is too hard for the Lord. Around like sixteen, seventeen, this is where you start to see Jeremiah's prayer. What I thought was really interesting is Jeremiah is in prison and potentially just gave up the last of his money to purchase land that he'll never get to live in and that's probably going to get captured by the Babylonians anyway. And he never in this prayer one time says, get me out of this prison. (laughs) He just shows gratitude. He prays and talks about all the miracles he's seen. This shows me what a covenant relationship is like. He knows the Lord's heart so well that I wonder if he even has to ask anymore. He knows that the Lord will get him out of that prison when the time is right. He's been through a lot of prisons up to this point, and he just trusts. So he's not asking. He's just saying, you are a great God. And then he starts recounting all these wonders, the signs in Egypt, the miracles, the plagues, the Red Sea parting. He talks about the loving kindness, that you know, covenantal hesed relationship. That the Lord has offered him. What I thought was really cool, you guys, is that the Lord answers the questions he didn't ask. So when Jeremiah prays and only offers gratitude despite being in a dark prison, what the Lord answers is, let me tell you why this is happening. And he didn't even ask that. But they have a relationship the same way sometimes Jason can come home and he can see on my face or, but the way I'm interacting with people, how my day has gone. And I don't have to say a word and he'll just be like, hey, Maria, do you need something? Can I help you? <laughs> or do you want to go down a swing? Do you want to just give a drink? Like it's this, He we have a relationship and he knows my heart so well that he will answer questions I haven't even asked. And that's what happens with the Lord. So he teaches him, he reminds him of the sins of the, that this is coming from the iniquity to me, as a parent, I read this as a way of comfort to say, Jeremiah, this isn't your fault. I know things are falling apart. You've done everything you could have done. This has to happen. It's not your fault. Because uh, I wonder sometimes if Jeremiah worried that his prophecies didn't get across. Maybe he should have carried that yoke a few more days. You know, I wonder if he, like every parent, wonders if he's done enough. And the Lord is reminding him that This is because of their agency and their choices, not your lack. And so I think that's a powerful message that you find in here. So that's around 32. Because of all the evil of the children of Israel, this is what has happened. And then in 33, this is powerful as well. This is God's answer about proving Himself that He's all in. And they have turned unto me the back and not the face, though I taught them rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not hearkened to receive instruction. He has taught them through prophets over and over he calls it rising up early because it means he's giving them revelation through his prophets well before they need it well before babylonians are even close to their gates he has warned them about being in bondage he has warned them about idols that's what our prophets do for us today they have this sight that they can see far into the future and they're saying today get better at revelation you're not going to be able to survive spiritually without it which means there's going to be something coming, and we need to act. And that's what I think rising up early means. And I think it's a way to comfort Jeremiah to say, I see your work, I see what you're doing, and I know you've tried. I think as a parent, there's beauty in it. And then he speaks a little bit more about Zion. So when you go forward, again, I think he's always trying to fix Jeremiah's mind on the future that will come. around 39, And I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for the good of them and the children after them. There will never be a falling away again once they've been gathered. That's the promise. And I love one heart and one w- way. In other scriptures, we read Zion as one heart and one mind. And that's great as well. But one way implies to me that we're all on this same path. We're gonna have wildly different lives and different, you know, experiences and personalities. And you know, Zion is full of color and you know, flavors and depth. It's not, it's not all just. The same, what it says is you're all going to unify under something that will bring you all together in one place. I I love that phrasing of one way. When you go a little bit further in 40, he says, I will make thee an everlasting covenant with them. Remember, this is a covenant, the new and everlasting covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the covenants that Adam and Eve made. What President Nelson says in that article from this month's Ensign is those are all essentially the same thing. All those covenants have been carried from one generation to the next, each dispensation when they're brought back again. It's all that same covenant. It's what it's what we hold on to today. That that will be made again, and then in forty one, yea, I will rejoice over them to do them good. I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and my whole soul. He's promising things to Jeremiah that Jeremiah didn't ask. As a parent, I totally get this. There are prayers in my heart that I don't ever vocalize about my family and the future, and I feel this kind of answer, especially when I go to the temple, that He will bring everyone home, that there will be things that will tether hearts together that I can't visualize, and I haven't even prayed for, that He's promising me. And then I love what you see in 42. So I will bring upon them all the good that I have promised them. In time, when the wounds are healed and they are clean, all that good, all those blessings that He's been like, welling up, hoping that they will be obedient, will pour out. And that's what Zion looks like, you guys. That's the future we're heading towards. That's why I feel like we have to have this positive spiritual momentum because all the good is coming and we don't want to miss it. That goodness keeps rolling right into chapter 33. This is where you see Jeremiah is still in prison. I don't know if this is a second prison experience or if this is in the same prison and this witness comes a second time, almost like we saw with Moroni and Joseph Smith. I'm not sure exactly, but it, for sure there is a second experience with the Lord in a prison at some point in Jeremiah's life, and he invites him to call unto him. So in three, call unto me, I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. There's always more to learn from the Lord. These mysteries, you know, things you can only learn by revelation are are available to Jeremiah. He just needs to seek them. And so the Lord's reminding him of that. And then he shows him some of the the things he's still going to learn. So in 6, he talks about the end, how I'll bring them health and cure. I will cure them. I will reveal unto them the abundance of peace and truth. This great gathering time will be a time of restoration in so many beautiful ways. At 8, he talks about how he will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. There will be a period of cleansing. And if you've ever tried to clean the wounds of one of your kids or yourself, you know that sometimes that cleansing phase is not pleasant. But it will happen in order for the goodness and the restoration to come about. I love how he phrases it in 9. He says, Which shall hear all the good that I do unto them, and they shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and for all the prosperity that I procure unto it. It's interesting to think about fearing and trembling for goodness. And I didn't really get that verse until Violet had me watch a makeover show this week. <laughs> so she was she's into this makeover show where they go into houses of families who are in need and in 24 hours, they completely revamp the house, like inside, outside, everything. And then they bring the family back and surprise them with this incredible makeover. And what I loved watching is the big reveal at the end. Isn't that everyone's favorite part of a makeover show? But you can see the families. Like they didn't even know this renovation was happening. So they pull up to their driveway and then they get a catch. They catch the idea of what has happened and they tremble with joy. Literally, I watch it on camera. The moms weep and they, their hands shake because they just can't believe the goodness of the world. <laughs> you know, that they're just marveling at the kindness of strangers and they... As they walk through their house and they see these burdens lifted off their shoulders because all of a sudden they have opportunities to accomplish things that they couldn't on their own, they tremble with joy. That's what I think The Gathering will feel like. It will be like this ultimate makeover show that all of our lives will be restored in a way that we're like, wait, we, we just left. <laughs> That's what I love about this show is they leave in the morning, and by the time they come back the next morning or that night, even sometimes, everything has happened. And they're like, how? How?" I think all of us will feel like that, where we just are dazzled at the ability of the Lord to cleanse and cure and restore. That's what, Isaiah, that's what Jeremiah is being reminded of. And then I love that everybody will get it. So in 11, the, it says in the middle that we praise the Lord of hosts for the Lord is good, for His mercy endureth forever. At a future point in time, everybody will get it that those painful moments. So today I had to give Henry my grandbaby medicine. So I had to help Jake, his dad, give him Tylenol. And he did not want that <laughs> It's in a little syringe. He had a fever and we had to bring it down. And he was fighting and gritting his little tiny teeth. And we had to hold him really tight. I ended up having to hold his head almost like a vice so that Jake could put the medicine in. And so it would actually go down his throat and he wouldn't just spit it back out at us. And it was painful and he thought I was so mean. But in that moment, I knew... In an hour, he's going to be so grateful. He won't even process how happy it will make him, but to not be rushed to the hospital and to not get shots and to not all those things that could have happened and the joy he feels in the moment of being free of that fever, make it worth it. And I think that's what 11 is promising. All of us will get it and we'll realize it was worth it. Not just us, but all people will get it. When you flip the page, you see a little more. He talks about how he will perform that good thing. That good thing is this promise of a covenant, that the Savior will come again, that he will reestablish his church on the earth. So that's what you see in 15, that the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David will come, that Jerusalem will be saved, Judah, northern Israel, southern Israel, they'll all be gathered back together. Remember, it's not just that they've been scattered, it's that even before the scattering happened, they've been divided. They've been a family, you know, kind of like Civil War families who had had members on both sides of the fight. That's what happened in Israel. The children of Israel were divided, and so he's going to reunite those hearts. And then he promises that he will multiply things, that the seed of David will be multiplied. We know from the Book of Mormon, from King Benjamin, from Abinadi, I think, that the seed of David or the seed of Christ is us, those who choose to accept the covenant, those who choose to appreciate The atonement of Jesus Christ, become children of Christ. You become His. That's the seed of David, that's the seed of Christ, and they will be multiplied, meaning there will be incredible, exponential growth in those who will participate in covenants and come unto Christ and be His. In chapter 36, we've gone back in time a little bit because now we're a couple kings before Zedekiah. Now we're under Jehoiakim, but it's a really similar relationship. So you don't have to go too deep into the history to understand it. Basically, Jehoiakim is not a fan of Jeremiah. Surprise, surprise. Because Jeremiah is still prophesying about the destruction that's coming and how they need to change their ways. And the king doesn't like him. So he's in some kind of prison arrangement. It doesn't sound like it's as dire of a prison situation as he'll experience in other times of his life, but he's under some sort of house arrest. Thankfully, he has a scribe who's here to help him because the Lord directs him to write all of his prophecies down. And you have to think, if you're just, what's the point, right? I don't know how if this took days or weeks or months for the scribe to write all the prophecies that Jeremiah's had, but he does it. And I think the reason he does it is because of what is revealed to him in verse 3. Basically, what the Lord says is that they may hear. It's this profound message of hope tucked amongst all this other heart. He says that they may return. In fact, I circled the maze. Every man from his evil way, that I may forgive the iniquity and their sin. What the Lord wants and what He's hoping for, no matter how many times He gets rejected, is that they will turn. Not just that they'll turn to Him, but they'll turn and be healed. He wants to forgive them of their sins. He wants them back in this covenant, and He is extending another olive branch and it comes through these words of Jeremiah. And what I think is really cool, you guys, is how it catches in Jeremiah's heart. So if you look around verse 7, he says basically, maybe it'll work. 7 says, it may be that they will present their supplication before the Lord and will return every one of them from their evil way. He has this infectious hope now that he got from the Lord that says, maybe they will. It's what gets every missionary out of bed in the morning, right? No matter how many days of hard you've had before that. It's the same thing with parents. No matter how many days of hard you have this infectious hope from the Lord that says, maybe today's the day. Don't give up. And so he does. He uses a scribe, they work together, and they write all the words. They plan a day where they can go out into the city where as many people as possible will hear. There's been this big fast, and all the city's coming together, and so they read the words out in the hopes that people will hear it. And the right people do hear it, because the princes are become aware of it through, you know, kind of the telephone game of sorts. They they understand that this scroll has been read. They ask for it to be read to them, these princes, and then they're afraid. They read it, and they're afraid of what's going to happen next, because They believe some of the prophecies, I think. They must believe it because what they say in 19 is, you guys need to hide. So the princes who are worried about these prophecies say, we're gonna share this with the king, but Jeremiah and Baruch, you guys should go hide somewhere because I don't know how he's gonna take it. And so that's what happens in 21. They read it in front of the king, it's read, and the king has this really interesting response. He basically, he it describes it really in detail. He's standing by a hearth and so he cuts up the the scroll that Jeremiah wrote, to Baruch wrote, and he tosses it into the fire. And there's this sadness in your heart when you read it because it's like the idea that him tossing it into the fire is somehow going to stop the prophecy from coming true. Um, and what is even more haunting is in 24 it says they were not afraid nor did they rend their garments normally to read a prophecy about the destruction of your city and your town and your nation would cause you to fear and turn to the lord and you know tear your garments to like say i i'm i'm sorrowing lord help us it doesn't happen with this king and you know the visual us? <laughs> Okay, don't forgive me for this one. But you know when Harry Potter in the very first one, when he gets that first owl, the invitation to Hogwarts, and the Dursley dad tears it up and throws it in the fire. And then later, a whole bunch more of those letters come. I almost did that for an object lesson this week. <laughs> Just laughing at the visual of it. But that's kind of what Jeremiah sees. He's like, I don't care how many scrolls you cut or how many times you throw it in the fire. It's going to come to be. It's going to happen. And you can't, by crumpling it up, you can't dismiss the prophecy. And I think that applies to us, because whether or not we pay attention to the words that were just spoken at conference, whether you ever listen to them again, they are prophecies. They are teachings for our time, for this six-month period of time. And by ignoring them, you don't do any good for yourself. You don't set aside the doctrine, or it doesn't stop rolling forward because we don't pay attention to it it's gonna roll forward. That's what we know about the future of the church. It's gonna roll forward until it consumes the whole earth and whether or not you pay attention, it's coming. And that's what he's trying to get across. Um, and so I love the visual of it. In fact, it gets emphasized even more when you go down in the verses. In 26, it says, their lives are on the line. Basically, the king says, bring the two guys that wrote this, You know, I assumed, put them to death and the Lord hid them. So again, I picture the invisibility cloak. <laughs> it's October, you guys. I've got Harry Potter on the mind. But I don't know. I don't know how this happened, but I love that it did happen. I read a BYU devotional just this last week. Uh, Actually, I listened to it. I don't think the transcript is out yet, but he talked about this situation in Bolivia where there was huge unrest and fear, and the two mission presidents who were his parents had to come up with ways to get the missionaries to safety. And he mentions this period where there was a sister missionary who felt invisible walking on the streets amongst all this chaos. She felt like she was somehow shielded. And I'm like, invisibility cloaks. They're real. (laughs) I just feel like it's real. So, you'll see that in the verses. And then he talks about how he has to write all the words again. So, again, you guys, I don't know how long it took, but he's supposed to write all the words again. Except for this time, the Revelation has some additions. So, it adds some prophecies about this king and how he will die and his family will die because of his choices in this moment. And I think there's a couple lessons to learn there. One that Revelation is living revelation, especially when it comes from a prophet. It can be adapted. It can be added to. Um, That's not new. That's all the way from the Old Testament. So, as we see things from Joseph Smith and others that new understandings come about, that should be expected. But I think the bigger thing is it's that choose-your-own-adventure path. When the king chose to rebel and to turn against this revelation that came literally to his room where he could have consumed it and changed, He didn't. And so this new path opens up, and that new revelation had to be written. So you can see at the end in 32 it says, and there were many added besides unto them many words. The, the, The prophecy just got denser and heavier and harder because of the choice that the king made. Way back in Deuteronomy 28, the children of Israel were prophesied that if they turned away from the covenant, if they turned back towards idols, incredible catastrophic destructions would happen. And I feel like Lamentations is sort of where you see those played out. And it's hard, it's hard to read. It's a, It's a parent who is literally just weeping for their children who are now struggling and can't find comfort. I really think, and I know I've said this a couple times, but I think that's part of the reason the Lord wants us to keep our covenants. He wants the children and youth to understand the strength of the youth and to use their agency to choose good. Because it's when you don't, you are without comfort. You lose the Holy Ghost. And he knows you're going to get in spots where you need comfort and you'll be flailing to try and find it. That's what you see, especially in Lamentations 1. Jeremiah is just sorrowing because he's spent decades of his life, you guys, trying to teach them that this would happen. Then he watches it happen right up close, firsthand, sees the city get destroyed, sees the burning, and then he sees the aftermath. And the aftermath is just as bad as the burning because you see all the children in the streets and the people who are starving. And I mean, chapter two even references cannibalism that happens because of the catastrophe that is in front of them. And he just aches, you know, he aches the same way the Savior ached when he was like, how? How did you not let me gather you? I would have gathered you like a hen. It's just this ache. And so when you go into Lamentations 1, know that that's where you're headed. You'll feel the ache. And he says, how? How did this happen so fast? Which is interesting because, of course, Jeremiah knows exactly how it happened. But he still wonders how it could possibly go so fast and be so bad. And he's aching for their loss, that they have no one to comfort them. That's what you see in 2. She weepeth sore in the night. Again, he's personifying Jerusalem. He's talking about the people, that they are weeping, that they're turning to all their other lovers, meaning like all their idols, all those things they thought they could get strengthened. They're now desperately turning to them, and they can't find relief. Remember last week when we did the object lesson with the water bottle that leaks as soon as you try to use it? That's the moment they're in right now. They're turning desperately for help from their false gods, and they're realizing, oh, this is just stone. This is just wood. It, it can't do anything for me in this situation. Um, and and they're devastated at it. And so is Jeremiah, because it, it could have been so different. Um, and it hurts. They find no rest. So, if you go through these verses, you'll see a lot of different phrases jump out at you. There are bitterness in four, that they've gone into captivity. This is not just their city is destroyed, their people are getting carried off to be slaves in some other land, and it's devastating. Their beauty is departed in six, that none will help her in seven. People mock her Um, in eight. It talks about how she is removed because she has grievously sinned. I think Jeremiah knows pretty clearly how this has happened. It's not that he wonders how it's come about. I wonder if he realized how fast it would come about. That when the Babylonians do conquer, it is fast, and the temple is destroyed, and the gates are destroyed, and the walls crumble. It's It happens so fast. Um, the visual that came on my mind as I was studying this is those that footage of 9-11 and how fast we went from just kind of like confusion about what was happening to just utter devastation. And that's what he's seeing in an entire city of people that he loves despite their wrong choices. Um, He talks about the adversary's involvement in it in 10. You go a little further and he talks about his sorrow, that they will see sorrow. It's heavy. Um, I don't think Jeremiah ever once rejoiced that his prophecies came true. You know, there are lots of wonderful prophecies that President Nelson has been able to give that it's probably been delightful to see them come about that doesn't happen with Jeremiah. I, these are all hard things to see come about. It's all the all the struggles that come with spiritual bondage. Th- theirs will be physical. But for us, I think what our prophets are warning us about is spiritual. I really loved the way they have redone the For Strength of the Youth, that pamphlet that they talked about at conference and how it's been reworded to invite you to use your agency and to, to really question your discipleship and make your choices based on your discipleship. And if you feel like you're off course, to course correct, because you know it's a very, this is on me and these are my choices and I'm going to be accountable for them. That's what he's reminding them of in these verses. The big ache comes for me in 16, where it says, because the comforter that should relieve my soul is far from me. The enemy prevailed. We can't have access to the Holy Ghost without the obedience that comes that it's predicated on. So, when we're talking about your Strength of the Youth pamphlet to the kids, that's what we're talking about. You can make all kinds of choices. It's not going to delineate for you all the little details about what clothing you should wear and what music you should listen to. It's going to say to you, think carefully about where these choices go. Can the Lord bless me? Based on my choices. And if he can't, what am I setting aside? What temporary joys am I putting in place of the real lasting joy? And that's what I need to make my decisions based on. He talks about the rebellion that comes, that his bowels are full of compassion. That's like the seat of compassion when in scripture terms, it's the depth of compassion that they're they're rebelling. Again, this is that weakness versus rebellion. You're gonna read these verses, you guys, and you're gonna think, boy, this seems extreme, <laughs> you know? But you have to remember that they've had generations of prophets. Think how many prophets, even just in Jeremiah's day, all those contemporaries of Jeremiah that we talked about, that they rejected, that they turned away from, all that teaching that they've abandoned. They've had a lot of time. This isn't weakness. This is rebellion, and rebellion comes with consequences. And you see those all in here, that their hearts become faint. That's the last phrase in chapter 1 that just sort of sinks in you, um, and it gets a little bit deeper in chapter 3. Chapter 3 is our last one, and it's another one of those contrasting chapters because it speaks of heaviness and sorrow, but with the understanding that it's something they have to pass through in order to get to the brightness on the other side. And the visual that comes in my mind is physical therapy. So, I don't know if you've ever helped somebody after surgery or you've had an injury where you had to go through physical therapy, but so many of these verses sounded like physical therapy to me because they're so painful, and you have those moments where you're like, "Why are you doing this to me? This can't be helpful to me. There's no way this is good for me." And you get angry, and you're, you know, frustrated, and that's how they sound. You know, you look into, and they say, "You brought me into this darkness, not into light." Haven't ever felt like that about a physical therapist. Like, why are you making this so hard? And then in two, he talks about being, or in seven, and that they've hedged me out. I can't get out. I'm stuck in this treatment that I don't want. They feel like their bones have been broken in four. In five, they talk about how their paths are deliberately crooked. They can see the consequences of their action. And now they're in these crooked paths and they're frustrated. That's, That's physical therapy to me. He has turned aside my ways. He pulled me to pieces. He's made me desolate. All of this with this understanding this undercurrent of it's for your good, you know, they are going through this incredibly hard phase because of the sins that they committed and the rebellion that they created. They have this really hard stretch of therapy and it's intended for their good. And that's where you start to see it. Right now in 17, they talk about how they feel far from peace. Thou hast removed my soul far off from peace. I forget prosperity. They can't even remember what it feels like to feel productive and prosperous anymore. There are moments like that in the therapy process <laughs> that you just can't remember. The most power punch part of this chapter for me happens beginning around 21. This is where you, you see that person who's in physical therapy dig deep and there's a catch, and they're like, there's something more. If I can just hold out for a hope I will endure, this will end, and it will get better. It's the person who really wants to grit their teeth and walk again. That's what's happening in 20. So he says, my soul has still in remembrance and is humbled in me. 21, this I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. This is when they start to catch, like there's some there. there's a reason this is going to be worth it. If it is not the Lord's mercies that we are consumed, because His compassions fail not. Basically, what I think Jeremiah is saying is like, you're still alive. You're still here. You still have the strength to walk in this annoying treadmill of trouble, but you have the strength, and that's the Lord's compassion giving you a chance to still be here. Make use of it. And he's trying to get them excited about it. He says, the Lord is my portion. It's an invitation to hope. He says, In 24. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for Him, to the soul that seeketh Him. He is tapping into a deeper source, and He is saying, those who wait on the Lord—and remember, we've talked about waiting on the Lord—that that that is not a passive position. It is a position of hopeful anticipation and action. Those who wait on the Lord and seek Him will find hope. This is 26. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Don't you just think that phrase is incredible, that you will quietly wait? It is this, when I think of Neil A. Maxwell, this is what I picture, because he was such a great example of waiting on the Lord, not just in the words he spoke, but in his whole body. You know, the, he struggled with cancer, he struggled with all kinds of adversities, and he patiently waited on the Lord. He waited through uncertainty and and embraced the Lord's hope. Um, and it's just so powerful to read it. There's quotes in the notes if you want to go deeper into that. But this is where that shift happens. So he starts to understand. In 30, he giveth his cheek to him that smiteth him. In that physical therapy process, you turn a corner, right? You get to a point where you're just going to listen to whatever they tell you to do because you can see hope is like right there. You can catch vision of, no, my legs are going to work again. My elbow is going to be able to bend again. And you catch it. And so then you're like, I'm going to show up and I'm going to do whatever they ask me to do. That's what's happening in these verses. In 32, but though he caused grief, yet he will have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. I think the people who are physical therapists have an incredible personality. Most of the ones I've met are, you know, they are someone who is strong and they are able to withstand a lot of abuse, and they have vision for the future. They know what you can accomplish, and they are driven to help you do it. So they will find a way to have a multitude of mercies. When you do well, they will cheer louder than anyone else does. That's what he's promising. And then one of the most important verses, I think, is in 33. For he doth not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. The Lord does not inflict harm. There's a great quote from Elder Holland all about this, but he does not inflict harm for no reason. He never makes your life harder than it needs to be. What he does is allow things to happen and then promises that all things can work together for your good. No matter what happened, whether it was your agency or someone else's that caused you to be in this hard spot, he can make all things work together for your good. So he invites you to cheerfully do all things that lie within your power and then stand still with the utmost assurance to see the salvation of God. That's what Jeremiah is teaching in different words, but the same bright burst of hope. So he says in 40, let us search and try our ways and turn again unto the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts with our hands to the God in heavens. It's this don't get stuck here. I know the city is destroyed and I know everyone is suffering. Don't get stuck here. Let's go. Let's build from the ashes. Let's create something better. And he's It's hard. He talks about the weeping that happens in 48 and 49. There is a constant sorrow, but it is a sorrow towards something greater. So in 53, they have cut off my life. This is when you start to get a picture of. I wonder if this is actually a miracle that happened in Jeremiah's life that we don't have the details of, because he talks about being cast into a prison that's deep and low, and water rushing in, and then it being sealed over with a stone. <laughs> I can't imagine a more terrifying circumstance, but he talks about how in that moment he turned to the Lord, and the Lord drew near unto him. So, in 55, I called upon thy name, O Lord, out of the low dungeon. In 57, thou drewest near in the day, and I called upon thee, thou saidest, fear not. I think the reason he's recounting this story right now is because every one of them is afraid, and every one of them feels like they're in a deep pit and water is pouring in and the opening is sealed. And he's saying, I know how you feel. Sometimes I wonder if this is why Jeremiah's life was so hard, so that at this point when the city's in ashes and everyone is destroyed, he can stand and testify and say, I know how this feels. I know it seems like there is no hope, turn to God. Stop clawing at the walls, hoping that that wall will open. Turn to God and he will tell you, fear not, I've got you. That's the message of Jeremiah. His whole life is a message of, I've been through hard things. I know how you feel. Trust me, there is hope. Because He can testify in this moment that He got out of that pit and that that light did come back. And don't you think that's exactly what these sorrowing hearts of Jerusalem need? I think it's why you've been through hard things and why I've been through hard things. And ultimately, I think it's why the Savior went through hard things. All the hard things that He voluntarily went through are so that He could stand and say, I see you in that pit. I've been there this whole time. There is hope. There is light. Turn to me. That's the message of Jeremiah, and I hope you love reading it this week. Thanks again for joining me, you guys. If this content is resonating well with you, I hope you'll consider liking and subscribing, leaving a review if you can, and then also popping over to the full course. In the Creative Come Follow Me course, I provide weekly content in full videos. So full videos, the insights, videos of all three object lessons, as well as all the tools you need to support it. So within the course, you'll find professionally designed printables each week. You'll find extensive study notes so that you can go a lot deeper into the text. You'll also find three years of back content. So for, since 2020 in the Book of Mormon, I've been creating weekly content and object lessons to help facilitate meaningful, memorable, simple learning. So if those are tools that would help your family or your class, I hope you'll consider subscribing. Head on over to creativecomefollowme.com. You can find sample videos, sample printables, and an option to subscribe for a month and test it out for your family and see if it's a good fit for you. I hope you enjoy it.